Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. Good to have you here this morning with us. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. We've got a lot to cover this morning. Uh, Over the next few weeks, we are going to do a little mini-series in the midst of Acts called Radiant Reminders of the Resurrection. And so over the next three weeks, you have this Sunday, and then you have Palm Sunday, and and, uh, I think we're planning on kids singing, right? So that would be awesome. We haven't had that happen in probably over a year. So that would be a good thing. Uh, And then Easter Sunday, you know, in case you haven't heard, we're doing two services. We're doing an 830 service. There's no child care for that service. And we're doing a 1030 service, which is a normal service just like this one with child care and uh, small groups in between. And we're doing that so that there will be plenty of room here for, you know, everyone to fit and for everyone. If you have someone in your life that you know needs to be in church, go ahead and bring them. Uh, The goal to get through these next through uh, next two Sundays is to cover a lot of scripture because on Easter morning, we're going to talk about the conversion of Saul to Paul. And the reason we're going to get there is because each and every one of us knows someone or may be someone who needs Jesus Christ to stand in our path because we're going in the wrong direction. And that's the reason we're going to be here because there's some of us that are going through our life by our own religious rules. We've adopted rules that have been handed down uh, from generation to generation. We're just doing what we know is best. Sometimes we're going in a rebellious state against the church. There's a lot of people these days who are rebellious against the church who feel like church is not something that they need. And maybe COVID even proved that to them in their own mindset that, you know, I don't really need to go to church. And then there are some who are headed on a road of destruction, which is exactly what Saul was doing, who need to have an encounter with Jesus Christ because as we're going to see today as a radiant reminder of the resurrection, there is a resurrected king who sits at the right hand of the Father. And he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Let me tell you what he's worthy of. He's worthy of each and every one of us every single day surrendering our life to him because he is Lord. Amen? All right, Acts chapter 6 and 7. We got a lot to cover. That's why uh, we read some in Scripture. Let me give you a little bit of background on what's happening. The church is growing. The church is booming. Probably somewhere over 10,000 people are now part of the way, as you're going to see it called. And they they are actually gathering in community. They're gathering in the public square, and they're proclaiming the gospel, and things are beginning to grow, and they're actually going to run into some opposition as we get into chapter 6. And the thing is, is that the church is beginning to function the way that it's supposed to function. And so the church is supposed to function, and it functions best when all the body parts are working together for the glory of God. And so this is kind of what we talked about last week, so let me remind you of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 as we get into this. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus Christ, he descended, he ascended back into heaven and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. Now this is my job. This is my job is to to proclaim Jesus Christ week in and week out to take the scriptures and to teach you in such a way that it equips you for the good work, that God wants to use you for his body and for his kingdom and for his glory. And so this is exactly what's happening And it says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ 
from whom the whole body, hear this, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, last week I told you a little illustration about biology class and how when I, we would do dissecting frogs or you know fetal pigs or whatever it was we were dissecting, how they would take all the body parts out of the little animal, right? And they would scatter them all over the room and there would be, oh, I can identify this as a part of the body and I can identify this as a part of the body. But none of those parts of the bodies were functioning. There was no life in it. And so what he's saying here is that God who descended also ascended and he gives gifts to the church so that the ministry would be done by the saints. And the ministry that is done by the saints, those who gather together in community are all working according to the gifts that God has given to bring unity and love within the body. So what that means is we all play a very, very, very important part in the gathering of the church community. And as we get into scripture, you're going to see it moves and it shifts from the apostles being the center of all the things that are happening to a group of guys who are just church members. These are, these are guys who are full of faith, full of the spirit, full of wisdom and full of power who are willing to say, get this, it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. Can you imagine a body of believers that were joined together with the same the same mindset. It's not about me. It's about the glory of God and how he's equipped me and how he's leading me and how he's guiding me. And if we would do that, we would have such a godly character that would create a courageous witness, a witness to the world. This is exactly what Stephen was. He was a witness. Stephen, as we know him as the first martyr in scripture, he's the one that gives his life proclaiming the gospel, the gospel which we just read all throughout that first song of worship. I mean, it was a lengthy one, right? But that's the longest sermon that's recorded in all of scripture, and it was done by a layperson. So if one of you guys get up here, I'm sure you could go longer than me if you're going to complain about how long I preach, right? <laughs> okay, so uh, nervous laughter. Here's what we do. Here's what we do. As the body of believers equipped by God, we proclaim Jesus Christ for the unity of the church. And when we do that, and it's matched with a godly character that's not just lived inside these walls, but outside these walls in a community, we are a courageous witness for who Jesus Christ is. And he is a courageous witness. In fact, the word martyr is the transliteration of the Greek word witness. Stephen is a witness. I think it was Tertullian who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What happens here is that there is a persecution and then there is a martyrdom that takes place that then causes the church to spread. It takes it from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It begins to go out of this one place where they're all gathered and it begins to spread into all the towns and cities and around the world so that we're here today because of this courageous witness that took place. And it was done by a church member, someone who considered themselves part of the body and not just part of the body, but they were working the gifts that God had given them for the unity of the body. I read a story about a pastor, a Romanian pastor, and years ago, his name was Joseph, and he, he ran away from his communist country to study theology in England. And in 1972, when he was ready to go back home, he discussed his plans with his fellow students. They pointed out that he might be arrested at the border. One student asked Joseph, what are the chances of you successfully implementing your plans? 
Joseph smiled and said to himself, now that's a typical Western thinking. Now, later he wrote, chances of success, I never thought in those terms. My thinking was in terms of obedience. I knew that the king had said go, and I had said yes. Yes, sir, I will go. Joseph turned the question around and asked God, God, what if I ask you about success? The Lord gave him the verse Matthew 10, 16, because God speaks to us through his word, amen? I send you as sheep into the midst of wolves. Tell me what chances does a sheep have surrounded by wolves of surviving five minutes? Tell me what chances that sheep has of converting those wolves to sheep. You see, the problem with Western evangelical Christianity and the Christianity that we're so familiar with these days is that the focus has shifted from obedience to success. It's shifted from obedience to success. In fact, it's shifted from, comp, from commission to comfort. It's shifted from faith to feelings. It's shifted from proclamation of God's word to what's my best persona? What can I put on Instagram? What picture can I post today so that people see this about me and think this about me? We're more concerned about what people think about us in the images that we post than we are concerned about people's eternal destination. You see, evangelical Christianity that we know has shifted from evangelism to entertainment. And if we want to just put it clearly, it's shifted from Savior to self. Stephen, this man full of the Spirit that we're about to read about, his focus was on his Savior. It was not on himself. And it's evident in the two chapters that record his brief life as a believer. Can we pray? Let's jump in. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we would ask that this morning, as we tune our ears to you, that it wouldn't just be our ears that we tune to you, but it would be our hearts. That our hearts would be inclined to be convicted by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That if there are things in our lives that you know should not be there because you have saved us and you have redeemed us, Father, that we would be, would be cut to the heart and that we would repent this morning. Father, I pray for this church that you would equip us with the presence of your Holy Spirit with all wisdom and power and knowledge and grace that we would be courageous witnesses for you in the way that we exude a godly character that is, that is through you and you only. We, could do it, we cannot do it without you, Father. Lord, we would ask that this morning you would speak to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. First thing I want you to see in Acts chapter 6 is those who live in light of the resurrection live full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Let's read. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, who we'll talk about next week, and Pilchurus, and Nicanor, and Taman, and Perenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, isn't it interesting that a great many priests came to the faith? Now, back in Jewish custom and Jewish law, the priests were actually in charge of taking care of the widows, and what happened was is they actually saw church members stepping up and doing this work and doing this ministry in such a way full of the Spirit that they saw a witness, a courageous witness of how the church church should function, and it brought them in to being believers. They actually saw how the church functioned, and it was a witness that they wanted to be a part of. And what I want you to see, though, is that there was a complaint that arose. Can you imagine, this is hard to believe, can you imagine a complaint arising in the midst of church? Oh, man, the audacity, right? Who would have thought that a complaint would have arose? But this is a serious complaint because I don't know if you've been watching the news or not, but this complaint has racial and discriminatory implications to it. Okay, that's as far as I'll go with that. All right, so this is what's going on. There's this issue that's taking place and it's starting to divide the church. It's starting to become an issue. I like how David Guzik puts it. He says, the Hebrews were those Jews who were inclined to embrace Jewish culture and were mostly from Judea. The Hellenists were those Jews who were inclined to embrace a Greek culture and mostly were from the dysphoria or from the surrounding Roman Empire. To oversimplify, Hebrews tended to regard the Hellenists as unspiritual compromisers with Greek culture. These unspiritual compromisers, can you believe that? These people, they listen to this kind of music and they dress like this and they call themselves Christians and they do all of these things, right? The Hellenists regarded the Hebrews, however, as holier-than-thou traditionalists. Can you believe them? They dress like this and they listen to this music and they do things like this. Can you imagine that there would be divisions in the church over personalities and over preferences? Odd, really, isn't it? You see, sometimes there's complaints and there's divisions amongst the church that should not be there. In fact, we are united in Christ and all gifts are given to bring unity to the body. And if we're functioning as the part of the body that God's called us to be equipped by God, we function in a way that brings unity to the body. And so if we're not bringing unity to the body, then we're not functioning in the gift that God's given us. That's deep stuff right there. You see, this is actually the third time that Satan's tried to come against the church since Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 was persecution. He tried to attack from outside. As we've said over and over and over, persecution has one goal. It's to silence the church. And so it will pressure the church. It will try to, it'll try to get the church into a compromising position to where the church just says, well, we'll just be quiet because we don't want any, we don't want any harm to come to us. The next time we see him attacking the church, it's from within with hypocrisy and an ice and sapphira. And so he tries again. He tries, well, it didn't work on the outside. I'm going to try from the inside. And guess what? The third way he tries to destroy the church. He tries to destroy the church with grumbling and gossip. In fact, J.D. Greer, I love this quote. A spirit of grumbling and complaining kills more churches than persecution. You know, for those of us in this culture right here, who I'm mainly talking to, grew up in a Bible-believing, Bible-belt culture. And we've seen more churches split and be divided and be destroyed over grumbling and gossip than we have ever seen it be destroyed by persecution. Am I right? In fact, if we're honest, there's some of us who are in this room today who come from churches because we witnessed a split or grumbling and gossip, and we finally were just like, I can't can't be a part of this. The, 
the gifts of the Spirit are not being used in a manner to bring unity to the body. He goes on, J.D. Gurr goes on to say, Do you understand that when you speak evil of a brother and a sister, especially when you judge their motives, you're being used by Satan? Verse 2. And the twelve, some of the full number of the disciples, and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What we see here is that the apostles ultimately understood and wanted to ensure the most important thing that they had been given, and that is the ministry of the word of God. The church is founded by the word of God, is created by the word of God, and so the word of God is central, and it is to be taught accurately on a weekly, daily basis. Secondly comes the care of the church. Albert Muller says this, the church was created by God's word, sustained by God's word. Indeed, without the word of God, the church ceases to be the church. This is why we put such a high emphasis on the word of God here. That's the reason we're here. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to be a social club. We're here to be filled with the word of God because the word of God is the only thing that changes our life. Without the purposeful proclamation of God's word, churches become social clubs or religious routines or even just an event to attend. We wonder why so many leave the church when they're in their late teens and early 20s, don't we? The reason could be that they were coming not to be filled with the word of God, but they were coming rather to attend a social gathering with their friends and that social gathering is no longer relevant. Possibly they're no longer coming because they're out from underneath their parents' religious routine and they want freedom. Maybe they saw that there was no consistency between the family on Sunday morning and the family Monday through Saturday and they decided at some point, I don't want to be part of this routine anymore and they, they hit the eject button. Or maybe they no longer see it as an enjoyable or relevant event for their stage of life. And they say things like, well, you know what, I'll come back whenever I have kids. Verse five. And, when they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose Stephen. Chose Stephen and these other men, and they chose them because they were men of good repute. Men full of gifts that displayed the unity that is wanted in a church. These men are often attributed to as the first deacons of the church. Deacons, you are appointed to serve the church in a way that brings unity to the body. There are men in this church that are holding the office of deacon. They've been had their hands laid on them, and they are serving in a position that serves as, a, as an example to the rest of the church of how a church member should function. Deacons, you are held to a very high standard. You're held to a level where you, you put forth the example of what it means to be a church member. You are to bring unity to the body. You're to conduct yourself in a manner that supports harmony in the body rather than hinders it. This is why the qualifications of a deacon read like this in 1 Timothy 3.8, just to remind you, 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must be above repute. 
And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as a deacon if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as a deacon gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You notice the qualifications are things that would hinder disunity in the church, not slander from the deacon or his wife, not double-tongued, not dishonest gain, not things like that that would cause problems. You see, the interesting thing about this complaint that arose is that it didn't arise straight to the leadership of the church. No, it, it arose in little tiny circles all around in little small groups where people began to murmur and complain about things they didn't agree with that was happening in the church. And it wasn't until later on that it became apparent to the apostles. So the apostles then took action. Deacons are called to use their gifts in a way that brings unity to the body of Christ. And to be example for the church. Church, let me ask you, is the Christ-like character you exude bringing unity to the body? Is the gifts that God has given you being used and being functioned in a way that draws us closer to love in Christ? Church unity is something that is seen in our conversations, not just here on Sunday morning, but all throughout the week. So they chose Stephen. A man full of faith. Let me just point out the fact that faith is a gift. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This was the man of God's word. As you heard from his long sermon, right, in the middle of worship, he knew the word of God and he understood that all of the Old Testament was Christ-centric. It's all pointing towards a greater Messiah. It's all pointing to the fact that there would be a high priest, that there would be one that is greater, and it's the Messiah whom they killed, right, is what he's getting to. He's a greater Moses. He leads a greater Exodus. There's a greater thing happening in Jesus Christ, and he understands this. Stephen was a man of faith because he believed the word of God, and he applied the word of God, and he stood on the word of God, and he proclaimed the word of God. If we're to be people of faith, it doesn't mean that we just have a belief. If we're people of faith, it means that we are people of God's word. We hold to God's word. We cling to God's word. We believe God's word. We proclaim God's word. And we stand on God's word even when there's opposition in front of us. This is what Stephen's life was. He was a man of of the word of God. He was also full of the spirit. This means that he was not a sinless person, but he was someone who exuded the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He was a man above repute because when they looked at his life, they saw the reactionary things called the fruits of the spirit. I say they're reactionary. They're not actionary. You can't act out these things. These are the reaction things that take place because when you squeeze a fruit, something's gonna come out, right? doesn't matter if it's a banana or an orange, you squeeze that fruit, juice, or something's coming out of it. Let me tell you, the world wants to squeeze you in such a way to see what's really on the inside of you. And if you are full of the Spirit, when you are squeezed, guess what's going to come out? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. When you are at work and things get a little tense, and you begin to feel the squeeze, let me ask you, do your coworkers see the fruits of the Spirit come pouring out of your life? When you're in your home, when you and your family are in a dispute, when things are not going as you had planned and you are feeling the tension in your home, let me ask you, do your, does your spouse, does your kids, 
Does your family, do they see the fruit of the Spirit come pouring out of your life when you're squeezed? As we see from the life of Stephen, this is exactly what comes pouring out of his life when he stands there facing execution. This is only done by Jesus Christ and Christ alone. John 15, four through six, Christ would remind us of this. Abide in me and I in you. As you cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're not bearing fruit right now in your life, if, if I asked you those questions and you're like, Jeff, I'll be honest with you, when I get squeezed, at work or at home or, or wherever it is that I am. If those things are not coming out of my life. And let me tell you something. It is a direct inclination that you're probably not abiding right now. It might mean that you're not a person of faith right now, meaning that you're not a person who is holding to God's word, spending time in God's word and standing on God's word. Maybe God's word has taken a back seat in your life. Let's keep going. Number two, those who live in light of the resurrection Live full of grace and power. Let's keep reading verse 6 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the free men, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. It says that Stephen was full of grace. Grace is a characteristic of Christ. In John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. The thing that they saw in Stephen was Jesus Christ, his grace exuding through him. If you'll turn to me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I just want to show you what I believe shows grace. There's this story of Jesus at a Pharisee's house and a woman who is there who is, who is anointing him. And I want to take this little story to show you that Stephen was a man of grace. He understood grace because he had received grace. Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair of her, of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. 
A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will, will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. So looking at the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with them began to say among themselves, who is this for even, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. Those who have been loved much, love much. Those who have been shown much grace, show much grace. But those who don't feel like they need to do those things often don't show those things. The religious person. There's a contrast here in this story between a Pharisee, a religious leader, and a woman of the streets. There's also a, a same here with Stephen and his Jewish opponents. These religious leaders who don't think they violated the law, but as you see, they, they did violate the law. They show no grace to Stephen, but Stephen continually shows grace to them because he's received grace. Not only that, it says that Stephen was a man of power, a man of action. He wasn't just someone who knew God's word. He was someone who acted on God's word. He was someone who was willing to face opposition, who was willing to stand up and to declare what he believed to be true in God's word. And when they gazed at him, verse 15, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like a face of an angel. Now, I don't think this means that he was good looking. He might have been. I mean, man, you see his face so good looking. It's the face of an angel. I don't think that's really what they're saying there. I don't even think it's that his face was glowing. I think that there was something so different about his face, the face that showed grace and love and forgiveness to people who we would think don't deserve it. It was like a face of an angel. Not only that, it's a description of a person. This is what Howard Marshall says. It's a description of a person who is close to God and reflects some of his glory as a result of being in his presence. When they looked at Stephen, he was someone who, it was evident, spends time with the Lord. Let me ask you, when people see the countenance on your face, because we can actually do a lot of good things with our actions and our face tells a different story, am I right? If you're married, you understand that one completely right? You can do the right thing. Oh, I'm doing the dishes. And you can make a face the whole time you're doing the dishes and it doesn't count. It doesn't count that way. But this, this man, Stephen, his face matched his heart. It matched his actions. Our walk and our witness is to be a di direct reflection of Christ and his presence in our life. They go hand in hand. When we think about angels in the Old Testament, we see them and they are messengers of God who bring awe and fear to all who see them. Stephen was a man who didn't bring awe and fear, but he was a man who brought wisdom and power and the word. And he boldly proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, those who live in light of the resurrection 
live focused on Christ. Those who live in light of the resurrection live focused on Christ. Flip over to Acts chapter 7, 51 through 16. We'll pick up where the praise team left off. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. A man full of the Holy Spirit, a man full of grace, a man full of faith. Even as he's being persecuted and killed and martyred, he's praying for their forgiveness. He understands the great debt of sin and what it does to each and every individual who is far from God. And it's a far greater thing than just our little moment of circumstance. He said, you're stiff-necked. You're proud and unwilling. That's what that word means. You're proud and unwilling. Stiff-necked people are proud and unwilling to change. Stiff-necked people, they're proud and unwilling to listen. They're proud and unwilling to surrender. Often religious people are the stiff-necked people because they know enough to pridefully believe that they're good enough and thus they're unwilling to change, to repent, or to surrender. When we think that we've done enough and we've done enough good Christian things, we stiffen up and resist the Holy Spirit because we don't want to give up any more than we've already given up. Is that true? Sometimes we're stiff-necked because, look, I've, God, I've done enough. I've served the church. I've worked in the nursery, and you don't understand those kids back in the nursery, Lord, right? I've done my, I've done my stuff, and we stiffen up, unwilling, proudful. Sometimes we resist the Holy Spirit. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Oh, you're religious. You know a lot about God. You were actually given the law, he says in his sermon, and yet you didn't follow it. You resist the Holy Spirit. Resisting the Holy Spirit leads to two things, a seared conscience and complacent sin. If we are people who stiffen our necks, God, I'm not doing it. I've done enough. If we're people who resist the Holy Spirit, who brings conviction into our life, that leads to a seared conscience. And what a seared conscience means is that what used to convict you and make you feel guilty, I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be participating in this, you no longer feel that twinge of conviction. It's gone, it's seared. 
that nerve is no longer there. And let me tell you, there are evangelicals who are growing up, especially in this age group right here, who have a seared conscience because they've been told that it's no big deal, that that's the way the world's going and that people are living and they're cohabitating and they're, they're uh, morally off and it's just not what we're gonna get into, right? And so their consciences are seared because they've been handed down something that has been stiff-necked and resisting of the Holy Spirit. Resisting of the Holy Spirit leads to complacent sin. Church, I'm going to be honest with you because I'm going to be honest with myself. I can become very complacent with sin. It's not that big a deal. I'm just, I've got control of it. You know, as long as I keep it to myself. A lot of times we become complacent and we don't realize that we're keeping a pet that will one day grow up to devour us. Resisting spirit leads to seared consciences and complacent sin. So what causes you to resist God, church? As you sit here in the pew today and as you listen to the word of God, what causes you to resist the Holy Spirit? What causes you to stiffen your neck? What causes you to not want to budge or bend or surrender? R.C. Sproul said this, Irresistible grace does not mean that we are incapable of resisting the grace of God. We, we do that every day. What is meant by irresistible grace is that despite our resistance, the power of the Holy Spirit vanquishes our sinful rejection of Christ and gives us ears to hear and hearts to embrace him. However, that is not the response that those present which is with those present with Stephen, which is why Stephen said, "You always resist the Holy Spirit." Anytime a large group gathers for worship, it is virtually inevitable that among their number, there are some who are not true believers. They may be members of a church, but they still resist the Holy Spirit and their necks have become stiff. They are set in their ways and their hearts have been calcified. They have no hearing in their ears for the things of God. Oh, they hear the sermons, but it never gets past the outer canal of their ears. There are people like that right now in all of our churches. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why couldn't these men see what Stephen saw? Why couldn't they be persuaded by his great intellect and his great arguing skills? Why couldn't these men be persuaded by his supernatural logic and his gifts and his works? In fact, why do multitudes sit in congregations week after week and remain stiff-necked in their sin and resistant to the Spirit's conviction in their life? Scripture tells us why. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The world seeks to blind us, seeks to make us live blinded in our sin, blinded from the glory of God, and to keep our focus off of him. But Stephen was a man who had his focus on Christ. Church, we're to be a people who keep our focus on Christ, who sits 
at the right hand of the Father, who sits in all authority, who is sovereign, who even works out the wickedness of this world for his own glory and for his own story. And we are a part of that story. Hebrews 1.3. Let me end with these verses. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10.12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, there is a king. There is a high priest. There is one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and we are to keep our focus on him because he will lead and guide us if we're people of faith, people of wisdom, people full of the Holy Spirit, people full of grace, and mercy. Listen, just as Stephen, we're to be a church that prays for those who are far from God. We're to pray for their forgiveness. We're to pray for them who are stiff-necked, those who resist the Holy Spirit, because we know this, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Today is the day where we stop the resistance of the Holy Spirit and we start repenting. We start allowing the conviction of sin to penetrate our hearts so that we say, God, I don't want to be calloused any longer. I want to be someone full of the Spirit, used by you for your glory and your grace, for your kingdom. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.